0: Recovery Elevator, episode 382.
1: Still, it's not lost on me that each day is a gift. Each day of sobriety is a gift. The relationships I get to have in my life, the work I get to do, uh, it's all a gift. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean there's not the hard days. But, uh, man, I'm breathing. And this breath is a gift. awakening is a shift.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Ryan. He's 40 years old from Denver, Colorado. Took his last drink on January 7th, 2013. Big time, Ryan. Listeners, we've got camping spots and men's cabin spots for our annual flagship retreat taking place this August 10th to the 14th in Bozeman, Montana. This is our staple retreat. It's our fourth time doing it. It is a blast. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And listeners, this is exciting. I'm working on two new courses that I want to loop you all in on. First course is AF Photography 101. This course is taught by Chris and Brian. And yes, that is the Chris Owen from the Recovery Elevator podcast. He's a wonderfully talented, gifted professional photographer on the side. How cool is that? This course is geared towards the AF Photo newcomer. And if you have or want to pick up a nicer camera for this course, then great, but you can still take the course with your iPhone 20 and your 56,000 megapixel camera if you want. This is a seven-week course starting late August or early September. And then let's get a front row seat to your thinking mind with Patrick Foley. You've heard of our course, Ditching the Booze, the What, the Why, and the How, which is for Caffery members only. So we are launching another course, DTB Mindfulness, which launches this September. Now, this again is a six-week course for Caffery members only. There's going to be a specific reading material or book or text to follow along with. Um, so if you're wondering what meditation is, mindfulness, and what the Buddha was all about and how to calm those thoughts, then this course is for you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sitting with my own thoughts was extremely difficult when I first quit drinking. I personally found traction on my own AF journey when I began to address this. So really cool stuff coming up with RE in the course department. Hope to see you guys there. And before we get any further, let's hear from a great sponsor, Exact Nature.
2: Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. Recently, I've been taking Exact Nature's Z's pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free, and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com.
0: Okay, let's get started. There are two things I want to cover with you today. The first one is Odette writes the newsletter for Recovery Elevator, and she sends out two of them per month. This is a great way to hear about what's going on with RE, courses, events, etc., promotions, all that fun stuff. So if you want to subscribe, go to the RE homepage link in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And we'd be honored if you guys subscribed. So in her latest newsletter, Odette had a great line and here it is. She said, we can't be hard on ourselves when we are doing hard things. One more time on that one. We can't be hard on ourselves when we are trying to do hard things. So quitting drinking is a process, and I'm gonna be real with you right now, it's hard with a capital H. We think it's a one and done thing, and for some it is, but for many this isn't the case. For the majority, like myself, it was trial, it's error, and probably a lot of field research, which is the word I like to use instead of relapse. Yes, this is solid advice for Odette. It's a comforting statement. I've learned that we, those who struggle with alcohol, are way too hard on ourselves. We place the bar impossibly high, and I want y'all to know this. Okay, another direction I want to take this is, perhaps it's this, inner incessant scrutiny, which is the reason why you drink. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about you being so hard in yourself is a driving force behind your drinking, that you're always letting yourself down, or you can't keep up with the bar that you're setting for yourself? The keywords there are the pace that you are setting for yourself or the bar that you are putting so high. Now, it's a tall ask not to be so hard on yourself because it's an exceptional coping strategy. What I mean is that inner relentless driving voice kept you alive during a time you needed it most. It's how you found some sort of connection and now it's time to face it, become aware of it and start decoupling it. So my advice on this, yikes, listeners, I've struggled with this one big time. In fact, I think every counselor or therapist I've met with within the first session is like, Paul, do you think you're being too hard on yourself? So this episode or this segment goes out to you, Paul, Pablo, and the listener. Lighten up. I've thought so much about this, which is why we have the governing rule 22 in recovery elevator, which is never take yourself seriously and lighten up. AA has this, and for them it's rule 62. I feel this is so important, which is why we bumped it up 40 spots, and that within itself is kind of a joke. Studies show that quitting drinking is seven times harder than learning how to parallel park. I'm kidding, I made that stat up. But yes, it's way harder than parallel parking. Lighten up and go easy on yourself. All right, the next thing I wanna cover is a line I heard the other day, which is this. Not drinking isn't an activity. Hey, want to go to the concert, Mike? Nah, I'm going to stay in and not drink. Want to go to Tim's birthday party? No thanks. I'm going to stay in and drink homemade lemonade. Well, that one could be an activity if you made the lemonade, but I think you all get the point. Another way to say this is, I quit drinking and now what? So listeners, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't know either. I can't answer that for you. What I can tell you at the fundamental level is this. You're making space with this quitting drinking process. Have you ever had a cluttered room, a basement or a garage? In your mind, there's a plan for that space that wants to emerge, but it can't since it's full of junk. Then you clean the area and say, ah, air hockey table goes over there, and a vintage Street Fighter II arcade game in that corner. Do you follow? So I quit drinking. Now what? I do know you're preparing for a new chapter in your life. Just like the book The Princess Bride is composed of eight chapters, your life is composed of chapters where themes conclude and new ones begin all the time. Just like the fire swamp chapter in Princess Bride was terrifying, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, yes, this drinking chapter sucks, it's scary, and it needs to wrap up soon. And to that I say, yes, I hear you. It does. And just like we didn't know, if Wesley and Buttercup were going to be reunited after surviving the fire swamp, You also have no idea what awaits you after the bottle. It's scary. It's the unknown. New chapters in life are scary by design. Life is an adventure. It's supposed to be this way. Now you have made leaps of similar magnitude in the past when you went to kindergarten. Maybe you went to high school. Maybe you moved sometime during school. Maybe when you went to college. First day on the new job and new relationship. And speaking of relationships, a theme in this next chapter of your life is a relationship with you, yourself. You've got a lot of life left to live and loving yourself as you are in the very near future, if not now, is one of the central themes in your next chapter of this life. It's exciting stuff, listeners. And speaking of chapters, this is the last episode of season three of the Recovery Elevator podcast. Chapter four starts next Monday. Now for 382 straight weeks, we have released an episode every Monday since February 25th, 2015. Now listeners, I remember that date well, because when the first podcast episode launched on iTunes, I said to myself, oh fuck, what have I done? I was terrified myself to commence this chapter. However, I'm so glad I did. My goal in episode one was to stay sober, to quit drinking, to begin an alcohol-free life. Alcohol was killing me, and the end wasn't far. I think my soul even knew that. So here we are, seven years later, still collectively working together on ways to ditch the booze and to say adios for good. So thank you, listener, times infinity, for all your support. Thank you for listening. You're a big reason I'm alive today and thriving. So listeners, nothing lasts forever, including the vicious cycle of drinking you may find yourself in right now recognize a new chapter is wanting to emerge you just need to clear some space so tune in next monday for a new chapter and before we hear from chris and ryan now a word from our sponsor better help
2: this podcast is sponsored by better help better help is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor you'll get a timely and thoughtful response plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available you all know that i'm a big proponent of therapy so i highly recommend you check it out simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash elevator.
3: Thanks Paul for the intro and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Ryan. Ryan, how you doing today? Doing well, man.
1: Thanks for having me on. It's good yeah. to be here.
3: It's good to have you. I'm excited to get to know you a little bit. I've heard about your uh, your spiritual community from a previous guest, and and I'm excited to hear a little bit about your story and, and hear about what you've got going on down there in Denver. But before we do that, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I've
1: been sober uh, sober just over nine years. Uh, I got sober January 7th of 2013.
3: Nine years. That's amazing, dude. How does it feel?
1: Man, it feels incredible. Still, it's not lost on me that each day is a gift. Each day of sobriety is a gift. The relationships I get to have in my life, the work I get to do, uh, it's all a gift. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean there's not the hard days. But, uh, man, I'm breathing. And this breath is a gift.
3: What a blessing, man. That's really cool. Uh, And Nice work, man. Nine nine years is amazing. So so good job, Ryan. Before we get into our questions, can you uh, can you give listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are, um, where you live, what you do for a living, family, uh, things like that, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: Great question. So uh, yeah, I'm Ryan Kennedy. I live in Colorado. Been out here for man, it's been close to twenty years now. Uh, we're in Denver. I actually live in a south suburb of, of Denver, but do my work in Denver. Uh, and I am uh, the founder, pastor, and executive director of a place called Free Spiritual Community, which is a community for addicts, loved ones of addicts, and spiritual refugees. And our mission here is to break the silence of addiction and create space for healing, recovery, and spiritual connection. Mary just celebrated our 17-year anniversary last week which man talk about gifts. It's, that's, it's still a sacred day when I can remember and reflect back on the, uh, the mess and chaos that comes with addiction and then the goodness that comes with sobriety and the things we get to work through. Sobriety was good to me. We had a, we had When I got sober, we had a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. She's now 11, and we have uh, four kids in total. Wow. So uh, there's still some chaos in our lives with a bunch of kids and running the kids around and doing the family life. And I love it, man. I love being a pops to my four kids. I love being a husband. I love uh, doing this work together with my wife. We started free together, so she's co-founder. And, and we, we enjoy working side by side on the daily. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing for us. And yes, what I like to do for fun. Yeah, well, we live in Colorado, so we're never at a shortage for fun. There's, you know, there's the mountains, there's the streams, the rivers, the, uh, uh, the mountains are fun in the winter and the summer. I don't get to uh, do as much as I used to do prior to family life. But yeah, I love being outside. Love, uh, I love hanging out with the family. Uh, part of it's really simple these days, you know, getting to do family life. I enjoy it. It's what I do for enjoyment. I love, you know, the pandemic came along in 2020. And since we've, I don't know, can we say we've come out of it? I think we've <laughs> come out of it.
3: Not cool. Coming
1: out of it, maybe. But I was reminded of my love for uh, travel, particularly international travel. So I love to. Uh, travel the world uh, uh, it's it's deep in my bones to get away from home and go see other places in the world
3: that's cool man you gotta you have got a full plate between work for kids that's a that's a full that's that's a handful and uh congrats to you guys on 17 years yeah it's it's I think you're right that is still a sacred day and you gotta you got blessed life man that's amazing yeah
1: I do you
3: thank you so uh, let's dig into it, man. Let's do what we came here to do. Would you uh, share with us? Let's let's maybe start from the beginning. Tell us what things look like early addiction or, or how you got introduced to to alcohol and, and kind of how that manifested in your life. And, and let's just take it as it goes.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I tell people all the time I've been in ministry for, shoot, I've been in ministry for 14 years now. And it took me getting sober and coming into uh, recovery to have what we call a spiritual awakening to really get connected with uh, with God. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it was when I say that I'm an alcoholic, there's this piece of me that um, that I say it was never supposed to be me Uh, because growing up, it was my brother who was three years older than me. He was the addict and alcoholic. He was the one bringing chaos into the family, into the town. And he was in and out of the county jail. And, uh, you know, in high school, I, I got the name of, I had the title of being the good kid. I was active in the youth group. I was a, a church kid, you know. And, uh, you know, he battled this thing of addiction. Like I said, brought, brought a lot of chaos into the family. And at the age of 17, I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And so I graduated And I went up to a small Bible school up in Michigan. I'm from Missouri, uh, born and raised in Missouri, went to this small Bible school and, um, I was there for one month and, you know, he got clean and sober for a couple of years. And, uh, I was there for one month in this place. I'd never been just, uh, just went up without visiting first. And my mom called me and said, um, you need to come home. Brandon's just been killed in a car accident. And man, that was a very difficult time in my life. That was uh, this God that I thought I knew, this God that I trusted and gave my life to. I I, had that that time and I couldn't admit it to anyone because I was filled with shame over it. But uh, I hated that God. I didn't trust that God. This God in my mind had abandoned us, had left us. And why would you let this happen? Uh, And also this really interesting thing started happening in my life. Addiction started taking over in my life. and, And in my mind, I couldn't admit it. I didn't know how to come to terms with it. Because like I said, that wasn't me. This wasn't supposed to be me. That was my brother. But you know what I found, and I took my first drink when I was 16 years old, but I didn't dabble in it much, you know, until until really I was 21, 20, 21. But what I found was I could pour that stuff down my throat and it had a way of taking away the shame. It put all those negative feelings in the back. and it gave me a way to cope with all the pain, all the fear, all the uncertainty, all the shame that I felt. So when addiction took over my life, I would look in the mirror and I would hate what I see, uh, what, what I saw. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the addiction takes everything from us. It takes relationships. It, it'll stop at nothing. Uh, but the thing it, it brought most to me was that feeling of shame. Uh, I did not I fundamentally did not like who I was as a person
3: yeah you know I think I was listening to a, a speaker the other day and he talked about how we we all we we all have these things that happen in our lives that that cause us trouble and whether that's looking at our social situation or trauma which like I'm terribly sorry about the loss of your brother uh, you know we have these things that happen to us and we just we're seeking serenity and and for a period in time, you know if we dip into that, that addiction, I mean, I mean, it can be anything for, for a lot of us, it's alcohol and we find that serenity in it, you know, and you said that until, until it takes it from us because we don't, I mean, I think we're, we're just short sighted. We don't see, We it, it also turns off those, puts those blinders on. So it turns off us our ability to see like what it's doing to those around us as well.
1: Totally. It was, um, and for me, it was, um, You know, you never wake up one day and say, man, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be an alcoholic. I want to hurt people around me, especially the people that I love most. Uh, But at some point it takes over and I couldn't stop. And I tried. I tried everything to try to stop. I would cry out to God, God, why won't you take this away from me? Um, I would make... uh, I would make promises to my wife like, honey, I know it's bad and I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to drink on the weekends or I'm not going to drink on certain nights. And and at one time I tried to I, I traded in hard liquor for wine and beer. and Then I gave up brown liquor and just went to white liquor and then um, nothing worked. I mean, I was always right back to where I started and I could not control it. And that's that's where I think addiction takes us. Right. That's when you know you're in the thick of it is when this thing, you you weren't so badly to control it up here, but you lost power to it. And it took over my life, and and it was hurting the people that I love most. And I didn't know how to stop the pain in me, and I didn't know how to stop creating
3: pain. Yeah. You know, you mentioned after your brother's passing, just being upset. You know, you had given your life to God, and then you were just upset with him. And that's that's something I, I hear a lot from, I mean, really from everybody. But it, it seems like our people in recovery we talk about things on a deeper level. But that's that's something that happened happened to me as well in a, in a different way. Where where I didn't like I didn't know if I was pissed off at God or or if He existed. And when that when that shift takes place, you know, until I was able to until I was able to reconcile that, I was trying to run the show, and mm-hmm. I was trying to control things. Yeah, so how how long did it take from from when you really started to to drink? Heavy? You know, you said that you dabbled when you were younger, but you didn't really get into it till you know you were twenty one or so. How long did it take till you like really got into it? Was it was it instant? Did it was it a, was it a long road?
1: You know, I think it was pretty instant.
3: Once once
1: once I started down that path, there was no stopping, and uh, I couldn't put it down because it was doing something for me. And uh, if, if there was if there was booze around, I was drinking it. And if it wasn't there, I was finding a way to get it. If you had pills and I was in your house, I found a way to get your pills. Anything to relieve that kind of inner turmoil, which is a bizarre thing, right? Because it ends up creating more turmoil, but you can't see it at the time. You think this thing is helping you when it's actually destroying everything around you. And, you know, I had this I was I was pissed off with God. But also it was like my only path. It was the only thing I knew. So um, I continued and, you know, I I went to college and finished my biblical studies degree. And then I went to seminary to pursue a master's of divinity degree. And that's where my drinking really kind of skyrocketed again when I was in seminary. Mm -hmm. And I was doing campus ministry. And then I got appointed to a local church and I had all this shame around I'm a pastor And I'm telling people how to live. I'm telling them that God loves them and God's grace is for them, but I didn't believe it was for me. Mm. So I I could look you in the eyes and actually believe it. Man, it's for you, but I'm too far gone. Y'all don't know my story. You don't know when I leave here, I'm gonna go put myself in a dark basement and I'm gonna drink myself to oblivion because I don't know what to do with all this fear and anxiety and shame. And uh, man, it took over.
3: You know, through all those years, did you, were were there any consequences to your drinking? Uh, I mean, just surface level, like the legal things like that, but also, you know, like internally, what sort of consequences did you feel like as you were going through school and working into, you know, becoming a campus pastor?
1: Yeah, there was, uh, so of course there was the legal things. I got a DUI while I was studying, um, getting my degree you know, there were all kinds of the external factors and the, the, you know, the, the ones that really matter though. Um, like I remember the Christmas before I got sober. So what is that too? you know, just over a week before I got sober, um, I was at my sister's house. It was Christmas day and I got done, uh, Christmas Eve, you know, preached five sermons, five services, Christmas Eve services with a thousand people. And, uh, I was at my sister's house and, she pulled me out to her porch and she said, Ryan, I, I don't want you coming around anymore. And, and we were tight. You know. And my, my impulse was, you don't know who I am. Don't you know what I was doing last night? If you only know who I am, you'd want me around. And uh, she gave me this, this real gut kick. She said, um, I don't want my kids to see you like this. And it was this feeling like if you don't want your kids to see me like this, you must not think I'm a good father. To my own little girl, who I, like I said, was two years old at the time. And I had to sit with that, that my own sister was telling me she didn't want me around, that I was destroying these relationships in my life that I valued most. And you know, it wasn't till later that I was able to admit, yeah, if I'm an active alcoholic, if I'm living in active addiction, I'm not a good father. Because good fathers don't leave their two-year-old baby girls in a crib to go get booze and get hammer. Uh, good fathers, uh, good husbands, don't um, put themselves in a basement and pass out on the couch uh, nightly and, and not, not pay attention to their wives. Good fathers and, and husbands don't behave like this. It took me a long time to get there because I was so concerned with, um, I've got to put on this mask. My job is to make you think I'm someone I'm not and to show only the good parts of Ryan and my greatest fear in life was what if you actually see who i am oh. what if you see the demons i battle and once you see those once you know who i really am you're not going to want me you're going to turn on me and that kept me in a prison
0: man
3: yeah i think there's so much of that active addiction it's it's just self preservation and people can be become overachievers We're like we we strive to be like high functioning in so many areas of our lives like one to con- just to Put a veil over other people's eyes like hey look at me like I, how can i have a problem look at everything i'm achieving and we're tr- we try to convince ourselves of that too and it's just not but like we know like we yeah. know on the inside and it's a lie
1: and, and i had a, a a guy in my lab help me understand that he said you've got to stop saying you were a functional alcoholic because there's nothing functional about going home and hating yourself there's nothing functional about leaving your baby girl in the crib to go get booze. There's nothing. And, and you just walk through all these scenarios with me. And so I had to give up that lie that we try to tell. No, no, no. I was, I was a good alcoholic. No, I wasn't, man. I was a mess. I was an inner mess mm-hmm. and I was driven by all kinds of fear and pride and ego and self-centeredness. I just didn't know how to articulate it
3: and admit it. Admitting it was really scary. Yeah. That's a tough spot, man. Uh, I want to ask one other question about like this time, as you can continued through school and then and then worked into into your career. You know, you'd mentioned that you that you were able to you know look at parishioners or people you're ministering to and, and tell them about God's grace and glory and and you know all these things that God can do for you. But you weren't willing to accept that yourself. What was your what was your relationship like with Him, like at that at that time? Was it was it just lip service to 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 people just to, to have a job or or did you have like a complex relationship with God? How how did you navigate that?
1: Yeah, it was a very um, it was a very distant relationship in the sense of I, I kept God all up here in the mind. So at that time in my life, uh, you know, the later years of college and seminary, it was an academic pursuit for me. It was a, mm-hmm. a theological pursuit. And I can look back at this now and see grace. That uh, There were times where I totally turned my back on God. I walked away, uh, but the grace in it, I believe now is God was there every step of the way. God never left me. I, I could turn and walk away. I could cover up that divine light that's in all of us. I could cover that up with darkness, but that light is still there. Yeah. And so what I've learned in sobriety is it's peeling away the layers of all that darkness all that shame all that addiction all that chaos and it's peeling that away so that that light can shine and i can be in relationship with god i can actually uh, be an intimate relationship with god not just in the mind not just an academic pursuit uh, but a a real life relationship and that's the difference today
3: yeah i like that man i think i think that we're all made in his perfect image and it's You know, if we're, I've heard someone talk about this analogy that we're like a, like a gem or a Ruby or something, and you can't, like, you can't take that away. Like nothing that you or I do can can remove that. Like he's still part of us, but we can pile this, you know, this junk on top of it with this, with this stuff that we're doing. And it's just a matter of, of uncovering that. Uh, But it's, I believe that that light is always there. And part of that
1: uncovering process
3: for me was,
2: and again,
1: I
3: didn't get here until I got sober,
1: but it was admitting that I was spiritually disconnected, which was really scary for me because I built my life around, no, 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 I'm spiritually connected. I'm a pastor. I have, if I'm not spiritually connected, I have nothing. And so when I admitted that I was spiritually disconnected, that's when the real freedom was able to creep in and change me. But I had to admit I was disconnected to get connected because if I'm still trying to worry about making you think I'm connected and I've got it going on, well, that did me no no favors, man. That just kept me in that darkness. Yeah.
3: Well, let's, let's keep walking this timeline forward. Let's get into like leading up to, you know, like leading up to that moment with your sister and leading up to that January 7th date. What did that? What did the last you know six months to a year of your drinking look like? And what were some of the things that were a catalyst for you looking for another way? It was such a deep disappointment of of myself. It was such
1: a not just a disappointment, an anger, like I say, a shame that came over me, and I got tired of of hating myself. I got tired of breaking those promises that I really meant. Like, uh, man, I'm not going to drink anymore. And then somehow, and I know we joke around about this in recovery that five o'clock hit, but that's how it was in my life, five o'clock hit. And I promised that morning I wasn't gonna pick up a drink and all of a sudden I have a drink to my lips. I didn't know how that happened. I could see, I could finally, you know, one of the gifts God gave me at the end of my drinking was, I could see the pain I was causing my wife. I could see, I, you know, I tell people sometimes it was like God gave me a crystal ball to where I could see I'm, I'm about to lose everything. I'm, I'm about to lose everything that I value most. And maybe there's a different way. It's really hard to believe that when you're in, you're in the middle of it. You tell yourself, this is just the way things are. Nothing's ever going to change. This is who Ryan is. And how long can I play the game? But at some point you get sick and tired of being sick and tired.
3: And there's so much of that. There's so, so much negotiating that we do. You know, earlier you talked about switching types of alcohol. There's so many, you know, what about th- these different rules that we try to put into place to control the drinking and then to try to control others and their perception of us. And
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, it's it's excruciating to watch, like, to be able to look at that other person and see, like, this timeline is is running out.
1: Like, yeah. You know, I, and I I've, had
3: people say to me, people
1: again, people that I love most you're drinking a lot, you're, you're in some bad situations. And I would always make up some lie. Well, you only see me on the, uh, on vacation, or you only see me at certain times. This is when I let loose. Man, I was let loose seven days a week, but yes. I would try to make them think this was a one-off. Uh, falling down the stairs, making a fool of myself on family vacation. You know, i try to, I don't know what happened. Maybe, uh, uh, you know, I was in the sun too long or so, you know, I'm not feeling well. I would always try to protect my booze because that's the thing I really loved. And so I had these these people that I care about coming showing concern, but they they, you know, if you're not alcoholic, you don't truly understand what's happening here. So my wife would say, Can you just can you just have two drinks tonight? Sure, honey, I'm gonna do that. I'm just gonna have two. But I knew I was sticking shooters in my pockets, mm-hmm. hiding bottles all over the house. I'm going to try to make you think I've had two. But then the question always was, how are you so, how'd you pass out after two? How'd you black out and do all this crazy stuff after two drinks? Well, you know, if you're living a life of addiction, you're lying. And I Mm -hmm. would tell all kinds of lies to protect my addiction. And at some point, man, that runs out. At some point you get to an end and the bottom is, you know, when, when you stop digging.
3: Yeah. What, uh, what led up to that for you Ryan
1: Yeah you know it was uh, January 7th of 2013 was uh it was a Monday morning and see Sunday nights they were like my Friday nights for people because I would get done doing the doing the Sundays at church and then I could um, I could let loose and drink the way I wanted to drink so Monday morning it was early my wife was getting up and she was I was downstairs on the couch you know still hungover and uh, she came down, and on this morning, she was holding an empty vodka bottle, and she had tears in her eyes this time. And she was holding that empty bottle that I thought I had hidden well enough. Apparently, I didn't. And she said, um, with tears coming down her cheeks, What are we going to do? And, uh, you know, she might have said that a thousand other times before, but on that morning, I heard it. I heard that it was really powerful for me. I heard that word we and something clicked and it said to me, man, you're not alone in this. You're not alone. You thought you were alone and it's been killing you. And I heard this word we and man, I cried out to God this that morning and I said, God, I can't do it. I cannot do this. And uh, again, it's not until I look back and I see it. But um, I think God was saying back to me, "Could." Good. Now we can get somewhere. Now. now you get that you cannot do this thing alone. And yes, yeah, so I went, I, I I told my wife, I said, you're right, honey, I am going to do something about this. I called our counselor. We had a marriage counselor that we were seeing uh, a few years before. And I called this counselor and I said, Sue, um, you know, I'd like to set up a meeting with you. Apparently, uh, I, I think I have a drinking problem. And she said, Ryan, I'm so sorry to hear this. I would love to meet with you and thank God for good counselors. Because what she said to me was, um, I would love to see you, but first you have to get involved in some sort of support group. And uh, it it pissed me off enough because what I heard her say is I'm not going to see you. So I hang up the phone and I go downstairs and Tammy says, well, what'd she say? And I said, she doesn't want to see me. And Tammy said, come on, man, what's what's she really saying? I said, I'm serious. She doesn't want to see me. And she said, I'm going to call Sue and ask her what she said. And I said, she won't see me until I get involved in some sort of support group. And Tammy said, well, you're going to do it, right? And uh, so that started my journey of reaching out to people, uh, admitting I can't do it on my own and start actually listening, listening to people who had been through this darkness and who had found a way out. And man, thank God for desperation because I was desperate and it's exactly where I needed to be.
3: Yeah. Had you ever tried anything before in terms of whether it's 12 step or podcast or reading a book or like, had you ever tried any of that, any of that prior to that?
1: Yeah. So I tried to read every piece of literature on addiction that I could because in my mind, uh, and again, my life was about an academic pursuit at that time. If I can just understand this enough, then I can beat it. So if I can just understand exactly why I drink, uh, then I can beat this thing. And I had to give up in sobriety. I had to give up all those questions. When people ask me now, well, well, why'd you drink so much? Why'd you drink? Why couldn't you stop? Man, I I liked it. I liked the effects produced by alcohol. That's why I drank. Mm-hmm. And I could go into, you know, we could psychoanalyze it. And there's a lot of truth to it. You know, I had a you know, my parents divorced when I was five years old. It was a really ugly divorce for lots and lots of years. I felt a lot of fear as a kid. I battled anxiety as a five-year-old that's just walked with me through life. And then my brother's death. And yeah, we go through hard things in life. Everyone does. But not everyone picks up a drink to soothe that pain. So there's another way to live. I just didn't know how to do it. And what I had to learn was religion couldn't save me from that. I thought if I pray more, if I go to church more, if I prepare a better sermon, this is this is going to save me from that. Religion couldn't save me. Only God could do that.
3: Yeah. It's about that
1: relationship, not about yeah. religion. And it's about surrender. And I, I You know, I didn't learn how to surrender in the church. I learned how to surrender in the and in twelve step groups. I learned how to surrender when other people showed me how they surrendered and what it was like to give up and what it was like to live into that weakness. We're strong in that weakness, but there's nothing strong about Ryan. I'm, I, I couldn't do it, you know. And it wasn't about self discipline. It was about surrender, yeah. admitting I couldn't beat this thing.
3: That's how that's how we beat it. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a paradox that we you know, speaking as a man and as a father, and I I don't think it's exclusive to us, but yeah, we just, there's got to be a way, there's got to be a way that I can do this. But I love when you, that share that, (laughs) that God said, good, now we can get started. I I love that. And I think speaking from my experience, I think that's, that though, I know that those moments are incredibly powerful. Like Mm. when we let go, let go, then we can start. Yeah. And so, that's the
1: hardest work we ever do. Right. I mean, still.
3: So nine years sober, over
1: nine years sober. Uh, I still have to engage the practice of letting go.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's
1: hard work, man. Still lifelong yeah. battle, I'm assuming.
3: <laughs> that's that's what I keep hearing from people who've been around, you know, and I guess that's a what well, you know, that's a gift in its own right that. The you know world's still spinning doing its thing, and we we have the opportunity not to be that just gross optimistic guy, but we got the opportunity to be a part of it. You know, yeah. So you find a, a you find a group, you you find some help. Did you did you then get in with a counselor, start doing some work with your wife? You know what what did those early days of of recovery look like?
1: Uh, those early days looked like uh, still me living into that fear. You know, I'd go to meetings. I was just telling a group of people this the other day. I'd go into meetings and I'd, um, I'd, I'd want to be the last one to get there right when the meeting started because I didn't want to connect with anyone. My greatest fear was to be known. If you really see me, wait till, you're going to find out I'm a pastor, then you're going to turn on me because I'm a pastor and an alcoholic. Um, so you're going to see that I've been a fraud. And so if you really know me, you're not going to want me. So my whole goal in early recovery was to just be on the margins, to sit in the back, not connect. I'd be the first one to leave, you know, and and there was always some guy that would yell out, keep coming back. Uh, And he he said it like he actually believed it because he (laughs) did believe it. He saw that it worked. And so, um, yeah, it it wasn't like this change overnight. It was this constant process of what I've learned in life, if we just keep showing up. And that's that. That's half the battle. Mm -hmm. If Ryan can just keep showing up, transformation happens along the way. Relationships get restored along the way if we do the work to 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 get there. But I've got to keep showing up. I can't just show up for an extent, you know, a certain amount of time and then life is fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to keep showing up on the daily. And so those early years, those early days of sobriety was man, it was a lot of fear. I, I had a lot of fear of, uh, for me, it was what if people find out, yeah. um, what's this going to mean for my job, my career. And, um, it right. was learning, uh, vulnerability, you know, and the fear was Man, if I get vulnerable, they're going to know me mm-hmm. and they're going to turn on me. But my, my experience is different when I'm vulnerable. It actually lets people in yeah. and people, they want to be around that when we can get vulnerable with one another, it gives permission to other people to get vulnerable with their life, their story, their darkness. And man, people crave that. I I have seen enough people crave vulnerability. So one of my jobs in the world is to keep leading in vulnerability, keep opening my heart, even when it tells me to close, even when it says, well, they could hurt you. Yep, they can hurt you. Vulnerability is a dangerous game, but it's a game that's worth it.
3: Yeah. You know, and there's ways to, you know, not everybody earns every part of our story and there's ways that we can cautiously do that. But I think that there, absolutely there's an element to that that we, we've got to do. And I love that. I've heard that before and I love it. Like when we when we recover out loud, when we let people know what we've gone through, it gives them permission to, sh- to share their experience as well. And there's, I mean, there's so many people out there suffering from any number of things who just, they, they haven't heard it. They haven't heard it from somebody else. And they just need to know that they're, that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah, man. Were you still doing, were you still, were you a a campus pastor like at, at this point in these early recovery days? No, uh, by
1: this time I was a pastor of a local church. Okay, I was on a staff with, uh, actually there was three of us pastors and, uh, man, talk about grace. (laughs) I went to them, the other two pastors, um, I was pretty new at the church at the time. I'd only been there for, um, uh, shoot, less than six months mm-hmm. or right about six months. And I went to them 30 days sober and uh, and I said, hey, I would just want to let you guys know you may see me darting off out of the office at two o'clock because I'm hitting an AA meeting and I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I'm not sure that was the wisest thing to do, <laughs> because they were probably freaked out like, oh, my goodness, we just brought in someone. Uh, a lead, uh, you know, uh, uh, another lead pastor who's an alcoholic and only 30 days sober. And at the time, I thought, "30 days sober, man, that's forever." <laughs> I've been sober forever. And those other two colleagues, man, they were so. They showed love, grace, compassion, and uh, they walked with me. And it was a, uh, it was a great gift that I can look back on and see. Man, they could have been filled with fear. They could have told, asked me to leave.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: it was a gift that God gave me along the way. That's awesome, man.
3: How about your wife? What did you know? You'd mentioned the the line, and you know, like some uh, some of the stuff with your with your daughter at the time. What did that look like to to walk through that? You know, how did she support you? Did you you know were were you able to lean into her versus like leaning into community? What what did that balance look like?
1: Yeah, you know, my wife is the most gentle, patient, and grace-filled woman I've ever met. She doesn't hold resentment like I tend to hold resentment. You know, she can, she can, um, she, she was able to walk with me in really profound ways in ways that were gentle and loving. And, you know, I had to make an amends with her, which was not just a one-time thing, but there were things that would come up and I had to earn back that trust. And she walked with me, man. I mean, that's she and she did it out of love. And she would we 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 committed to having hard conversations that yeah. I was open to her questions. I was open to her fears of, hey, you're going to that place. Are you, are you going to be all right there? Are you, are you sure you're not going to drink? And I had to open myself up to those questions uh, to restore trust. And what I can say today is trust has been restored she, you know, I don't have to leave. And she's not wondering if I'm going to come home that night or if I'm going to come home drunk that night. And, and, but it was a lot of hard conversations we had to
3: have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And there's, did you ever feel like you were getting, like you were getting drilled? Ooh. No,
1: you know, and, and I talk to a lot of guys who, who go through that and women too. They feel like they're, Their partner is drilling them and waiting for them to fall. Man, she never did that to me. She never held something over me from my past. And looking back, man, that's that's a gift she was able to live into. I don't know how she did it, but she never brought up things to create pain. She never, she never held something over my head. Yeah, and that's a powerful thing to be a part of.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably. I don't not to not to project. But I think that's probably an extension of God's grace onto onto her, onto you through her, you know. One
1: hundred percent.
3: I look at you know my our situation. We will be married seventeen years this summer, and the beginning was was rough for us. It was it was hard, and there I was one of them guys that was drilled. But you know what? It was I earned that too. But right. but that let you know being open that can lead to healing. Yeah. And, and like you said, it takes time to rebuild that trust. And as long as we remain a willing participant in that, I think it's possible. Yeah. And when we when we can really realize the pain that we've caused,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, I
1: didn't know how much pain it caused that uh, at that night she'd go to bed. I mean, that, this was the routine we lived in. She'd go to bed by herself and I'd stay up drinking. You know, that's not being a good husband. Today, I get to go to bed with my wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a big deal. That's our routine now. That's our daily life. We go to bed together. And that's, man, you've heard me talk a lot about a gift today. That's still a gift that I get to go to bed with my
3: wife, you know? That's cool, man. I'm glad that you have that relationship and and that she stuck around, you know, and supported you. Yeah. So uh, moving forward, let's talk about how. How Free got started. Look, mm-hmm. Where uh, where did this idea come from?
1: Yeah, you know, when I was about four years sober, I stood in front of my congregation from the pulpit and on a Sunday morning, and I, and I did so with the help of my uh, sponsor and, and mentors in my life. And I was brutally honest with my story. I let them know that I was uh, a recovering alcoholic. I let them know my sobriety date. And for anyone who was doing the math, they said, wait a minute, you were drunk when you got here? <laughs> And it was, uh, talk about that moment of vulnerability. You never know how it's going to go. People can turn on you. And that was my thought. Hey, man, the congregation may turn on me. They They may kick me out of here. But instead, what happened was the exact opposite. I was showered with grace and love. And what was so profound about that time was I got home on Sunday afternoon. Monday morning, I woke up and my email box was flooded from people from the, the community saying, hey, I, I battled the bottle. How'd you put it down? Or my my son or daughter is an addict or my brother or sister or mom or dad, whatever it was. And uh, I got to the, uh, you know, I, I went the, the following week on that Sunday and I looked out to the congregation and I thought, oh, my goodness, you all are struggling. You are sitting next to the, someone who is battling and you don't know it because we have gone so underground, we have gone so silent with conversations around addiction, especially in the church. And uh, I thought, man, if we could just bring this thing, if we could just expose it, you all would see that you're not alone, but everyone thinks they're alone. And so that started this kind of, uh, this calling, this passion of breaking the silence of addiction to let others know they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, some time went by and we decided, We decided we're gonna open up our backyard. Tammy and I are gonna open up our backyard on Saturday nights for four weeks, just to see if there's interest around the conversation of God and recovery, addiction and recovery. And uh, we did that in the first four weeks, they kept filling up and our yard was packed and the street was packed full of cars. And someone said, well, what are we doing next week? And we said, we didn't plan next week. We were just doing like a four week trial session. We took one month off and then we um, we got our own space, storefront space. It was a month to month lease. Mm-hmm. And from that time forward, we went gangbusters. We were We were weekly. And I was for a year and a half, I was still one of the lead pastors at the church where I was serving. And we were starting this thing called free. And man, it was a killer. It was like, we were exhausted. But when you're living into your purpose and passion, or some people call it a calling. It's the good kind of tired. It's the kind of thing that can keep you going. And, you know, we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to create space, not just for the ones struggling with addiction, but for the loved ones. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Tammy and I learned, man, we do this work together. And so there was something really powerful about getting them in the same space, sitting together, having that conversation. And we, we included that third category of spiritual refugees because what we saw was so many people that have battle addiction and the loved ones, they felt kicked around by religion. They were told they don't belong with God, that their past is, is too bad and God doesn't want them. And so we wanted to create space to say, you belong here. You, there, there's nothing in your past that keeps you out. Mm-hmm. You belong here. And so, what we have today is this misfit of people, of addicts loved ones of addicts and spiritual refugees. And uh, yeah, it's it's not a it's not your typical church, is what I'd say. It's a it's a group of people. I think um, I think Jesus would be hanging out with today if he were among us.
3: I love it, man. I think that there's just so many things that I love about that because it's. I mean, this is this is part of my life too. It's just feeling feeling like God turned his back on me, even though like I turned my back on him. That's the, that's the fact of it. But, but for people to have to openly be a space where people can come in and kind of the idea is like, Hey, it's like, I'm coming to church. Not, not because I've got this polished, perfect life and look at us sitting in the pew together. Everything's great. Meanwhile, like you, you can't stand the person next to you because of the things they're doing or, or because of what you're doing. But to, to have a spiritual space where you can come and and let that out in front of God. I think that's incredibly powerful. Not to glorify that brokenness, but to like be honest about it so that he can come into it. Yeah, that's right.
1: And you know, our tagline here, we say that our service is on Saturday nights now, uh, and it's been on Saturday nights from the beginning. Uh, But our tagline, we say it every every single week, uh, we don't do shame. And what that means is you can bring your mess here and and we've got a messy community, man. There's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of celebration too, but there's a lot of pain that comes with that addiction and with the loved ones who have been addicted to the addict in their life. There's a lot of pain, uh, but your pain is welcome here. Your messiness, your brokenness, your darkness. We are not going to shame that. And it doesn't, and it means we don't do shame, but it also means we don't do shame on ourselves because that's where I think we really need the reminder. We don't live into that shame. We can be set free of that. We can be, um, we don't have to let the past dictate our present, mm-hmm. uh, that we can truly come together and bring all that messiness in the community and no one's going to drop their jaw. No one's going to say, well, all you got to do is, no, no, no. We, we, we walk together and we do it together as community. And, um, and at times it's really painful and we keep walking it together.
3: So starting out Saturday nights in the backyard, now you guys have graduated. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> you've, moved, you've moved to, you've got to like your own, you get like a full-on permanent space, correct?
1: Yeah. In fact, we just moved in November to our permanent space. We now have, uh, you know, an 11,000 square feet building because our old space, we were literally wall wall people on Saturday nights. And the vision has always been uh, not to just be a Saturday night thing, uh, but to be like a recovery center. So we have, uh, currently we have, I think, 18 groups, recovery groups that meet here. So there's meetings happening all day. We have different events, um, sober open mic nights. We have after parties where we partner with other organizations and sober living houses. We just opened our, what we call the free cafe, because my wife has, uh, Tammy has, shoot 20 years of coffee roasting experience so now she's a coffee roaster Uh, she owns her own business it's called wagon coffee she roasts here at three but she employs women in recovery they they get beans they roast and ship beans all over the country but so we use her coffee at our free cafe and we have you know it's the whole get up the lattes the (laughs) we have food items uh but we it's important it's not just to do a coffee shop. It's uh, we want to create that space where people can come and, and really get honest with their lives, meet other people and, and have a center where they know um, they can be real and honest here. They know this is a place of safety. Uh, And especially man, if you're in early sobriety, you need those safe safe spaces, Mm -hmm. especially on a Saturday night, right? Where many of us would go out
3: and uh, do what we want to do. You know, that's amazing, man. That's a, uh, you know, I've seen, uh, I've followed you guys on Instagram and, and I just, I see bits and pieces of, of the amount of groups that you have and in the cafe. And, um, I've checked you guys out on Saturday nights and it's what, a like what a blessing to your community. And, uh, I'm just, I'm grateful that there's folks out there like you guys creating that space and open it up to people and, and just giving them that, that safe space to come and, and share. I think that's, that's so important. And, uh, I'm just, I'm really grateful for you guys, even though I'm like 12 hours away, <laughs> but I just think that's really cool, man. You know what I've learned
1: along the way is, um, God doesn't waste the pain. um, uh, if we're open to it, God will do something miraculous with the pain. Uh, 2018 is when we started free and that year I did six funerals of those who died of, of drug and alcohol-related deaths, five of the six were under the age of 35. In fact, the first thing we did when we started free was we built a leadership team. And the first week we started, I got a call from a, a mom of a guy on our leadership team. He was a guy I was walking with in the 12 steps. And she said, we just found Nick. He's uh, He died of an overdose. That was our first week. And, and I remember that time and all the pain that was associated with that. And it was also like God saying, this is why you're going to do this work because people are dying. Mm -hmm. There's an urgency here. It's not just a a metaphorical death. People are literally dying. Um, And now, as you know, we have this fentanyl crisis, this opioid epidemic. And it's just, it's another reminder that this work is, uh, there's something very tangible, literal about it. And it's, um. It's a life and death situation and God will not waste the pain if we open ourselves to it. So this story that I thought would never come out, I was never going to tell anyone that I was an alcoholic and in sobriety. And now it's like that story. God says, no, no you're going to use that story now. And I'm going to use it to bring life to other people,
3: but you've got to be open to it. Good on you, man. Way to listen to that call. Yeah. Before we, before we, go to the rapid fire round, Ryan. Can, why don't you tell us where we can find free on, on social media. And if we want to check out a service, uh, how are we able to do that? Yeah. So uh,
1: our website is freespiritualcommunity.com. And uh, you can check us out there. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, free spiritual community is our handle there. And uh, we live stream our Saturday night service through Facebook and through YouTube. YouTube is the same free spiritual community. And, uh, we, we have people that join us from all over the country on those Saturday nights. Uh, there's groups that gather in different States. They gather in a living room or their sober living house. And, uh, we consider those online people, people we've never met in person, that they're part of our community. And we try to take that very seriously. So we'd love to connect with you, uh, hit us up on YouTube, social website. You can find us there. Yeah.
3: And if you're, if you guys are curious, uh, listeners, I just want to encourage you, um, You guys have, you guys have a great, your Instagram is great. And check out those Saturday, Saturday night services. I've been able to, to sit in on a few of them and and you guys, you guys really do a a great job. So, um, so check it, check it out. And that's 7 p.m. Mountain time is when we do that. 7 p.m. Mountain. And we'll throw all this stuff in the, in the show notes as well. So thank you, Liz, for helping us out with show notes. All right, Ryan, with that, this time is screamed by, but, uh, Let's head to the rapid fire round. All right. You ready?
1: I'm ready as I'll ever be.
3: Uh, Number one, what is your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking?
1: How am I ever going to enjoy a beach again? How am I ever going to enjoy a Super Bowl again? How am I ever going to enjoy enjoy anything in life again without
3: a drink? Biggest fear. I think that's a common one opposite of that number two what is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol I get to be fully present today I get to be fully present in the life
1: of my kids I get to be fully present as a pastor I get to be fully present to the negative feelings in me I never knew how to do that man I would numb that stuff out today I get to be fully present to all of it
3: and that's a good That's beautiful dude Uh, Number three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink?
1: Dude, I drink a lot of water these days and a ton of coffee. Man, I'm surrounded by good coffee, thanks to Tammy. I was just going to say, for
3: for the shameless plug, what type of coffee do you like, Ryan?
1: (laughs) Wagon coffee is the best out there, man.
3: Wagon coffee. We'll put it in the show notes. Number four, what would you say to somebody who just had a, a relapse or a slip?
1: get back up get honest surround yourself with people who actually care about you so don't let everyone in not you said it earlier not everyone has the right to your story find the ones who are going to lift you up find the ones who are going to support you and surround yourself with those people and then do the hard work of opening your heart again even though it sucks it hurts open your heart again, and invite God in.
3: I like it. Uh, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are uh, in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
2: Yeah,
1: give up. That's a countercultural message. I know I know we hear it culturally. Oh, keep going. Just to fight through it. You got to press on. Yeah, how's that working? How's yeah. it working? Maybe it's time to give up. Maybe it's time to... Uh, Admit your weakness. (laughs) Admit you've got nothing left because what I've learned about grace is it always likes to pool at the bottom. So uh, yeah, stop digging, live into the grace that's being offered to you, live into a, a new life that's always possible. Maybe it's time to give up. And in giving up, we find something new.
3: I like it. All right, Ryan, and last but certainly not least, can you give listeners your favorite, you might need to ditch the booze if line?
1: Oh man, there's there's so yeah. much that comes to mind with the, you might need to ditch booze. You might need to ditch booze if you are waking up every morning looking in the mirror and you hate the person staring back at you. If that person disgusts you, you might need to ditch the booze.
3: That's a fact. That is a fact. Ryan, uh, I just want to thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for what you do for, for the recovery community and for, and for your community. I think you're doing beautiful work.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, keeping the important conversation going.
3: Good work in the world. Right. Thank you, brother. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. All right. Recovery elevator. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. Some of you may know that my wife was interviewed on this podcast. She came on to share her experience as the spouse of someone who struggled with alcohol. It was episode 321 with Odette. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. Amy, my wife, asked me to sit with her for support while she shared her story, so I was in the room with her when it was recorded. I remember listening back when it came out, though. First off, there was a whole experience of listening to my wife talk about everything that we had gone through but I specifically remember paying attention to the interaction between her and Odette. Maybe because it was my spouse and it's important to me that she's cared for, but it stood out to me how Odette was able to support her while simultaneously keeping the interview going. I recognized and I really admire that skill set. Odette and Paul are both great at it. It wasn't long after that that Paul approached me about helping out with season three. I was incredibly nervous and had a few conversations with people I trusted before accepting. To be a part of something that has been so big in my recovery is surreal. As we close out season three, I wanna thank you for giving me room to grow. The support from the RE community has been unreal. You're the best audience that a host could ask for, and our guests are some of the most beautiful souls out there. Next week will be chapter four, or season four, whatever we're calling them, and I'm excited to see what's next and to keep walking with you. So wherever you're at today, Recovery Elevator, I want to encourage you to keep going through the hard times, through the doubts and the roadblocks, you can get through this storm and you can thrive in it. In the meantime, try to find some peace in the moments that you're in. It's all a part of the journey and the growing that you're doing is beautiful recovery elevator. It all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.